Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my dear friend Carrie Plitt coming down the internet to me from Oxford. Morning, Carrie. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Octavia. Uh, I've been better. I have <laughs> I have COVID. Oh. I got it the day before my birthday. It has been lingering. Um, I'm dealing with some some serious fatigue and trying to truly embrace um, convalescence right now, which it turns out is very hard to do. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling great. My, I mean, I'm just feeling very grateful for the vaccine because it could have been a lot worse and for friends and family and, you know, modern medicine. So yeah. trying to see the bright side of this. But well, yeah, and also, listen, best. you're being an in- incredible trooper showing up for this recording this morning. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure everyone listening is like thrilled that you're here. And I just hope that it passes soon. It's such a blight. It is a blight and unexpectedly a blight because everyone was talking about how mild Omicron is, but this has you not know, been mild. It's so interesting because that whole chat about it being mild, no one I know who's had it has found it mild. No, so I don't know neither. who these people are who've found it. I mean, good for them, but like <laughs> everyone I know who's had it has had like quite a serious experience of, you know, several weeks of deep fatigue, total bed rest, etc. Well, I would not wish it upon my enemies, and certainly not upon my dear friend Octavia Bright. Who oh my darling! <laughs> I would, I would like to know how you are. Well, I don't have COVID, which puts me in a really strong position in this conversation. (laughs) Um, But I do have a small virus, so I'm still feeling a little bit under the weather, but nothing compared to you. I'm still up and about, but just kind of, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Those moments where you're you're reminded of your physical fragility and just having a bit of a cold even like makes me feel depressed. So I'm I'm also not at my most tippy-toppy toodly-too, but I had a lovely day yesterday. I went to see some friends um, down in South London who've got a little baby and she was great fun. I mean, I'm not like that into babies in general, but the babies that I like, I'm really pro. So (laughs) (laughs) pro selective babies. Yeah, exactly. I I have a very selective relationship with them, but when I like them, I really like them. So that was nice. And today I am staring down the barrel of a lot of reading and writing work, but that's okay. That's fine. I like reading and I like writing, so it's not the end of the world. Me too. (laughs) Before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You'll also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 12 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes. That's absolutely right. And this month's Patreon will be released in a week's time. And the theme is... TV. We're going to get into how we relate to TV, what we like about TV. We've both just watched quite a lot of TV. Oh yeah, <laughs> Not maybe. just because of Harry's COVID, but also just because of the pandemic. And we thought maybe it's time for a bit of an ode to the medium. So that will be ready for you on Patreon if you are a subscriber. And if you're not a subscriber and would love to listen to that scintillating conversation, you can sign up, as Carrie said, <laughs> at the link on Patreon. <laughs> But now back to business. Welcome to Minisode 28 and thanks for tuning in. The format for these Minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up. And then we will, in our second act, recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed recently. 
That is right, Carrie Plitt. Um, and so theme-wise, this time, we were thinking after our last mini-sode, which was about mothers, we heard from a lot of you listeners, which is really wonderful, about your thoughts about mothers and motherhood and mothers in literature that you loved or hated. And there were loads of fantastic recommendations of books that I'd not heard of, which was great. We also heard from lots of people about the weight of symbolism around that role and and how you all felt about it, about maybe your own mothers or your own decisions about whether to become a parent or not. And so we thought this time we would extend the conversation to fathers in the name of equity. And also (laughs) riffing a bit off my statement in the last one that, that in many ways I'd rather be a dad because that seemed to really resonate with a number of people as well. And a few women got in touch with me personally to say, I feel the same way. And it's an interesting question. Of course, the figure of the father is heavy with its own symbolism, but it is a different kind. And I think it's interesting to kind of hold it up against these ideas of like the perfect mother, the monstrous mother that we got into, the mother we're supposed to long for or fear. When you think about like, the ideas that people have about fatherhood, I don't know. For me, it seemed like there were fewer, (laughs) fewer (laughs) complicated symbols to contend with. Perhaps this is because of my gender and because I have never felt attuned to the symbol of the father because I can't be it, because society tells me I can't be it. Of course, I could be one, but whatever. So anyway, we thought it would be interesting to take essentially the same set of questions and just turn them on the figure of the father and see where it got us. So as we did when we were talking about mothers, let's start with something super simple. Do you, my friend Carrie Plitt, Mm -hmm. like reading fiction about fathers and fatherhood or where the paternal relationship is kind of the central conceit? Yeah, I think I do. As I mentioned in the last show, I've always loved reading fiction about families. And you know that I'm interested in realist fiction, which is often about families. So I do like reading about fatherhood, though I admit that I'm often more drawn to stories that are written by women, that are about women. Um, and of course, fatherhood can be being a father to daughters, so that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't exclude fatherhood narratives. But when we were thinking about mothers, I could think of a lot more examples of books that I really loved about mothers. However, I do think I'm really interested in revealing perspectives on masculinity because I think these things are all related, obviously. And I think fatherhood is a really good prism into that. So I loved Ben Lerner's The Topeka School. We spoke to him about that novel on the show, which is a really thoughtful look at how masculinity is kind of passed down through the generations, the therapeutic project, how that relates to masculinity. And I was thinking about this, and we talked a lot about the expectations of mothers in the last show. Kind of what you were saying before, I think less is expected of fathers in our society, but one of the things that is expected of men is masculinity. Right. So (laughs) I think that's one of the things that really gets in the way of fatherhood. And, you know, novels are a great way to explore that. So this comes with the caveat that I'm less interested in or I have less patience for books that are kind of focused on the humiliations of fatherhood and like the travails of fatherhood when it comes up against traditional ideas of masculinity. So I'm thinking of um, Carl Ovenaskard, perhaps, <laughs> or, or, you know, the Rabbit Run books, these books about men kind of being forced into less masculine positions when they're part of a family and grappling with that. 
I yeah. How about you? No, I mean, agreed. Big time agreed. I'm glad that those books exist because I think if you're a straight man and you're trying to figure your way through the trap that is masculinity and how it relates to fatherhood, then those are probably really helpful books to read. But I'm like you, I don't find them that interesting or compelling to me personally. And yeah, I think the point you make about how masculinity is kind of the thing that gets in the way is absolutely spot on. And again, one of the things that made me realize I, I don't really read that many books that are directly about fathers because I don't read that many books by straight men, really. I used to read much more of them. And it's not a deliberate choice. I'm not someone who's like, I don't read books by men. I only read books by women and queer people. But it just tends to be that I, in the last few years, have been drawn towards the books by men I've been drawn towards have been books by queer men. And then I read an enormous amount of books by women that don't seem to get into fatherhood as the central conceit in the same way. So yeah, I haven't, I was thinking about it. I haven't read a book that is like about fatherhood or about the legacy of fatherhood directly for a long time. The last one I could think about was Grief is the Thing with Feathers by Max Porter, which we spoke to him about on the show years and years ago, which is about a father who becomes the sole parent because of loss and his relationship with his kids and how they relate to grief. And it's very beautiful and it's kind of an interesting portrait of the potential for masculinity to be nurturing and to be things that you don't necessarily believe it to be, right? Um, if you mm. go within the parameters of the expectations of heteropatriarchal kind of models. But I was also thinking about how actually books about masculinity that kind of address it as a subject do reflect back on the discussion of fatherhood, even if not so directly. So for example, I was thinking about Thomas Page McBee's book, Amateur, which we had on the show, we interviewed Thomas years ago, which is not about fatherhood directly at all, but it is about how men embody masculinity. And Thomas is a trans man and it's about him becoming a boxer. And there is a lot about how men can subvert the expectations of masculinity within certain very strict parameters and how the transmasculine perspective shines light on that because it comes through a different channel, basically. And in that book, he finds these father figures in these boxing coaches and things like that. So I think that's quite an interesting way to come at it, although it is going a bit sideways of the topic that we're talking about. Mm. But, and then when I thought about it more, I was like, you know what, I'm more interested maybe in father figures than in actual fathers in literature. Like I was thinking about the character of Uncle Root in the love songs of W.B.E. Du Bois, which we spoke to Honoré Fanon Jeffers about recently. And in that book, in that big old novel, which is a huge family story, Ailey's dad is present and he's a nice man and everything, but he wasn't the figure I was drawn to. I was drawn to the figure of Uncle Root, who steps in as a kind of father figure, right? But he's the uncle. And I was thinking about how there is a space that's opened up in the absence of biological fatherhood, where a man can become a father figure, but it seems like it's a little bit less freighted with the expectations of masculinity as mm. they pertain to fatherhood. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And that to me is fascinating because in the mother's episode, we talked about the psychologist Derek Winnicott's concept of the good enough mother. And I was just thinking that's such an interesting thing to think about in relation to the idea of the father, because what does a good enough father look like? Like just how low is that bar? And I feel like it's very telling that it's not something that has needed to be articulated in the same way, right? Because the expectations are so different. And I wondered why do you think that is? And what do you think the most weighty expectations of father figures are in the kind of traditional heteropatriarchal paradigm? 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's a big question that I won't answer sufficiently. But um, <laughs> what do you mean? Haven't you done enough research, Carrie? Haven't you read some psychological research papers? Come on. <laughs> I mean, it's it's said so often that it's a cliche, but I do think culturally we reward fathers who just show up, and yeah. I do think we have moved on from that. We expect more of fathers now, but when we think about good fathers, we think about people who are there who show up and who are emotionally available. And when you think about what we ask of mothers, it's so much more. And we see it's so much more psychologically connected to the health and well-being of a child in a way that fathers just aren't. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder if that's supported at all by the actual science or if that is truly just societal expectation. When we were talking about mothers, we were talking about, you know, they're monstrous mothers, they're the perfect mothers, and those are kind of cardboard cutouts. And there aren't really any good mothers in literature who are also full, complex characters, but there seem to be more full, rounded characters in literature who are also good fathers. And that's interesting to me. And maybe it relates back to this, that it doesn't, you know, there's a low bar like Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, mm. or even The Father in the Road by Cormac McCarthy. It's like these fathers who are good fathers and who are there for their children, but they're kind of allowed to be full humans as well, in a way that maybe mothers are subsumed by their identity as mothers even right. in fiction. I don't know. What do you think of that? That's a half-baked theory. I think it tastes good, that half-baked cake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes sense to me very much so. I feel like maybe this is also demonstrates a bit of a hole in my reading and my reading life because I'm not that drawn to stories that are explicitly just about fatherhood. And perhaps if you were looking to read into that space, you could find more novels like The Topeka School, which I think is a really as you said before, like tries very hard to get into a full picture of what it looks like to be a parent and also a man, a straight man as well, mm, you know? Mm. And I think that there are monstrous fathers, plenty of monstrous fathers in literature, particularly in nonfiction, right? Particularly in abuse memoirs and things like that. There's like the weight of the violent potential of the very, very bad man <laughs> as father is big and it yeah. makes a very voyeuristic story set up but it also makes a setup that is devastatingly relatable because so many people go through that experience of having a, a violent father, right, in their family and in their life. But when I was trying to think of these good enough fathers, actually one that came to mind recently was um, the character Ethan in Meg Wallet's The Interestings, which I read after your recommendation and really, really enjoyed. Yay. I thought he was quite an interesting portrait of contemporary fatherhood because he's a very sensitive character. He's a cartoonist who becomes incredibly successful, but he doesn't come from wealth. So he doesn't have that pipeline of like masculine economic power, right? In his background, he's a, a man whose masculinity shifts in response to his changing circumstances that happen around his artistic talent and his female partner's wife comes from a lot of wealth. So there's an interesting power balance in that relationship anyway. And he has a couple of kids. And the thing that I thought was interesting in that book was that one of his children is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And he has a really hard time kind of accepting it and relating to the kid. And it challenges his ideas of his own parenthood. And he actually is a bit absent sometimes and he doesn't necessarily behave very well. And he's not condemned for it in the same way that the woman would be if she did the same behavior. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I totally agree. Although you're right, that is a is a wonderfully complex portrait of somebody who's not a bad person necessarily, but who struggles with this role, who yeah. wants to be a good father. Exactly. He really wants to be, and he lets himself down. He falls short of his expectations for himself. And I think that my read on the way that Wallitzer breaks that down a bit in the book is that that is partly down to masculinity Mm. and the struggle he has with the expectations heaped upon him by masculinity and what masculine prowess ought to look like. But also he's able to retreat into the expected role of the slightly absent father, you know? And the fact that also he's been in this power balance within his marriage where the woman has had the fiscal power and then he suddenly reaches a point where he becomes the breadwinner and the power balance shift that comes with that and how both of those characters relate to their parenthood within that dynamic. I just think it's a very interesting portrait of something that is a more contemporary concern, I suppose, right? So I guess the next question then is, do you think that the threat of the bad father in quotation marks, I'm like waving my fingers around madly here, um, of the bad father bigger than the threat of the bad mother, or is it just a different threat? Like, I guess I'm thinking along the lines of the fact that there can be a sexual threat folded into bad fathers or the threat of physical violence that isn't often folded into the traditional threat of the bad mother, which doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but I'm talking in terms of kind of um, tropes and stereotypes here. I think that's a good question. And I think your point is right that there are a lot of really bad fathers in literature, like truly bad in a way that maybe mothers, even the really bad mothers are kind of, there's something redeemable and there are plenty of fathers who are totally irredeemable in literature. So in the novel Room, there's old Nick who of course is like, this man who abducted a young woman and had a child with her and keeps her locked in a room. Oy. Like David Melrose in um, mm. Edward St. Amund's Melrose books, you know, these just like, monstrous figures. Um, and of course, there are also like the completely absent fathers, the ones who who leave and never come back. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a different kind of threat and danger. I was thinking about that very stupid video that was going around Twitter of a celebrity saying that if she was Putin's mother, she would have loved him. Like the implication is that he wouldn't have started war with Ukraine. Did you see that? No. Yeah. It was so stupid. It was. And honestly, I think things like that, it's like this person is saying something dumb people felt very good about themselves by like mocking it sanctimoniously. And I feel Mm. like it's better just to ignore it. But it was really interesting, wasn't it? Because I think that shows that we still have these ideas that the damage that mothers do to their children is psychological. And it's all about love or lack of love. And, And with fathers, it's maybe expressed more in like a kind of physical way. Like, are they there? Are they violent? Are they not violent? And that shows up in literature too. And I mean, I think there is a truth about that probably, but it's probably exaggerated in the way that these things always are when we're thinking about gender binaries that are circumscribed by society. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just thinking, listening to you there about the the father in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, whose total indifference essentially to his three sons is what sets off the drama of the whole book. And, you know, that's a book that gets deep into the weeds of like the philosophy of good and evil and are monsters born or are they made and all of that kind of stuff that very much links it to the masculine line connected to the father. Mm. 
I feel like this could also be a topic of its own in its own show, but the, the question of the stepfather, right? Which the stepfather can either be a, a like an opportunity for a redeeming masculine figurehead because the absent father has gone and then this new perfect daddy steps in. Or of course, it's a figure that contains an enormous amount of threat because it's an adult man in the home who's not constrained by the incest taboo, mm. as we see in Humbert Humbert in Lolita, who's kind of everyone's nightmare of the sexually predatory man who nudges his way into the role of stepfather in order to be close to the child he wants to have sex with. Yeah. I mean, that's a very simplistic description of that plot, but that's essentially what's happening. And I just think uh, it's a complicated one, isn't it? It's really, really complicated. I also think that the question of the bad father is something that you can't look at outside of the parameters of kind of race and class as well. And stereotypes about those things and expectations about those things, like the expectation of the cold upper class father who is absent, but because he has financial power and maybe a big house, you know, he can be off doing his intellectual work in the corner, completely ignoring his children, but because he provides for them fiscally, he's not considered as bad an absent father as the you know, stressed out working class man who drinks too much. Do you, do you know mm, what I mean? Like, yeah. and actually the function of these two absent parents is the same. All of the labor is landing on the women in the family and their children are emotionally abandoned. Also, then you have the trope of the bad father as a, a plot motivator. I was also thinking of Stieg Larsson's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, because Lisbeth Salander, who is this kind of edgy, tricky, very emotionally damaged, psychologically traumatized character whose trauma makes her into essentially like a total badass is how you're supposed to experience her. And her father, Alexander Zalachenko, is like a terrible, terrible man. And that's part of how she becomes this lean, mean fighting machine or whatever. And those books, because they're page turner thriller type things, they sort of romanticize that trauma and that violence in a way. Interesting. And they, I haven't read them. Yeah. They, I mean, I found them extremely compelling, but they're, they're complicated. They're troubling. <laughs> <laughs> troubling old books, you know, especially what they say about gender. I can see how that's problematic. Yeah, super troubling. <laughs> but what about, we talked very briefly, but what about nonfiction? Do you find yourself reading nonfiction books about fathers and fatherhood? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we've just come off talking about bad daddies, but I think there are a lot of really beautiful memoirs about fathers out there mm. in the world about people's relationships to their fathers. So I'm thinking about H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald, which is really a grief memoir, but also about birds. A book I mentioned in our year in review show is Lost and Found by Catherine Schultz, which I haven't read yet, but I know is in part about the author's relationship with her father and, and how her father was a man. And he died shortly after she met her partner. So it's kind of about finding love and losing people and how those things intersect in our lives. In terms of less good daddies, we talked about Alison Bechdel recently and um, Fun Home is just a wonderful, wonderful graphic memoir about her complicated relationship with her very complicated father who did some really terrible things and kind of coming to terms with that and understanding him. Those are interestingly all memoirs about women thinking about their relationships <laughs> with their fathers. And I can't think of any, I mean, please write it and give me some great examples. I can't think of any examples of men writing about their relationships. There must be some interesting ones. Of course, of course, there must be. Like men writing about their fathers, but also memoirs about being a father. 
and the only one that I could think of that I'm read is Autumn by Carlo Manauskar, oh. which, which I really hated. <laughs> and he also claims when I interviewed him about it, that it wasn't a book about fatherhood, even though it's literally addressed to his daughter. Oh, man. But another memoir, which I think is probably better, is um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is a letter, again, to his son about what it's like to be a Black man in America. So I think that's probably a really interesting rumination on fatherhood that I would like to read. I would like to read that too. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. I mean, similarly, I, I think there must be fantastic books about, by men, about their fathers, straight men, queer men, trans men, every, do you know what I mean? Everybody, like all the different perspectives you could possibly have. I just haven't been drawn to them. And that's probably also partly a failure of curiosity, actually. I recently um, just finished actually Sigrid Rousing's memoir, Mayhem, which is a really tragic story of serious addiction, basically, and the ripples that it sent through her family. And the central figures are her brother and his wife, who were both heroin addicts. And um, they had kids and this very troubled you know, fatherhood essentially or parenthood because their children were very vulnerable to their addictions and their family crisis was to do with safeguarding the children. Well, one of the things it becomes in a much more extreme story than that, which I won't give away, but their own father, they come from this extraordinary wealth. They're part of the Tetra Pak family billionaires. Mm. And their own father was this extremely buttoned up Swedish guy and she sort of doesn't dig into it too deeply, but looks at like the legacy of addiction and the result of the extreme trauma of that, but also puts it within this context of quite a kind of repressed family system, which I think is interesting. But it also, when I was reading it, it made me think about Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, which is about the opioid crisis, but it's also the portrait of this family, again, of extreme wealth. And as a reader, you can't help but get into some kind of fascinating psychological projection. And the thing that is a parallel between the Rousings and the Sackler family, who are the central family in Empire of Pain, is this extreme wealth and what that does to the men in the family, particularly, which of course made me think of Succession, which I know is not a book, but the idea that when the father has such kind of extreme cultural, social, socially sanctioned power, because not only is he the head of the family and he's a straight man, but he also has extraordinary wealth. Where does it leave the son to go? And the daughters perhaps have more freedom in that dynamic because they're not in the same trap because masculinity is not their trap. Femininity is their trap, which is a whole other clusterfuck, as we well know. But the clusterfuck of masculinity and how it relates to structural power when there is extreme wealth in the picture it's not uncommon for the stories about those families to have a son who can't find his way in the world or who is kind of castrated metaphorically by his father's power and success. Mm. And I think that's interesting. I think that is an interesting dynamic to kind of think about. And then the, the other book I was really holding in mind was Daddy Issues by Catherine Angel, which is basically a feminist critique of the figure of the father, the cultural figure. And part of her kind of discussion in the in the book is that you know the the father figure is a man that the culture tends to get it's easy for the culture to get misty eyed about and not hold to the same standards as men we decide are bad and it's almost like when we think of bad men like Harvey Weinstein for example it's almost like we can't bear to imagine that those men are also fathers yeah and that whole narrative about like i became a father and that's when I realized that exactly. X or Y. Like whenever a man, 
yeah, whenever a man comes on the radio and says, as a father, and it's like, no, how about just as a human being? As a human being, you're outraged about violence against women, not as a father. And if it only came to you once you had your own progeny, you need to get to therapy, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's, I think it's very interesting because I do think that the father figure as a cultural phenomenon that we relate to in particular ways is something that hasn't necessarily had as much intellectual dissection as the mother figure. And so writers like Catherine Angel, who are kind of getting into it from the position of like a feminist consciousness, I think it's very, very interesting. And it's a short little book and I recommend it um, if you want to think critically about fatherhood. That actually gets back to all of these memoirs that I could talk about, about women thinking about how wonderful their fathers were. You know, there's, there's not a similar like mother worship genre of memoir. And I think that's very telling, isn't it? Yeah. So my last very little question about just, just a very little one to throw in there right at the end, just as you're getting tired is, do you think that the boundaries of the paternal are loosening a bit as, you know, we talked about this in relation to mothers, but as it gets easier for queer couples to have children as kind of the expectations of heterosexual dynamics maybe are loosening slightly as heterosexual couples become more interested in equity and parenting. Like, do you think it's possible for the role of dad and daddy to become loosened from the grips of gender norms? I do think it's shifting. I think, you know, seeing shared parental leave become much more of a thing and men who like being caretakers embracing that role and and that is queer men, straight men, whichever, we still have a long way to go as we discussed last time. And a big part of that is, is a culture that expects more from fathers. You know, and again, it's like rewarding people for just showing up isn't enough anymore. It's it's we should expect it. Yeah. I think that question of expectation has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? Because it's also quite often to do with cultural shame. (laughs) (laughs) And like the way that cultural shame relates to expectations. Like when I think about, by no means all of the fathers of my age that I know, that I know some couples who are having quite a traditional setup where the father is the main breadwinner and therefore he takes very little parental leave and he keeps the family afloat financially. And that's one way of doing it. But I think in general, the expectation among the fathers I know is that they will do more. And therefore, if they don't, they feel shame. (laughs) And that's helpful. (laughs) I'm afraid. (laughs) Women have been dealing with that for a long time. I think it's time for men to carry some of that shame responsibility. Yeah. Have some shame, guys. You're welcome. As they say in Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Well, we'll be back in a minute to give you our cultural recommendations. Hello, everyone. We are back. Me and Miss COVID Carrie are back to give you our cultural recommendations. Um, So what is up first for you, my love? Well, I am trapped in my home, as you know. (laughs) So I've been watching a lot of TV and movies, some of it good, some not so good. But today I have brought two good things to you, both of which are currently available on BFI Player. And it's something that I saw the day before we began isolating for COVID. So I saw this in the theaters, but it is available to rent on BFI player. So it's keeping my theme together. But anyway, um, it's a film called Drive My Car. 
which is directed by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. Have you heard about this film? No, not at all. Okay. Well, it it was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars this year, which was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. And it was when a lot of people heard about this film. It's a Japanese film. It's based on a couple of Murakami short stories. And I honestly think it might be my film of the year. I loved this so much. I loved it. Wow. It's very simply shot. It's a relatively simple premise. Basically, there's an aging... Er- actor and director who goes to Hiroshima to direct a production for a festival there of Uncle Vanya by Chekhov. And he develops a friendship with the young woman who is hired to drive him to and from his where he's staying to the festival. And it's definitely a slow burn. <laughs> it's over three hours long. And it is literally a lot of long shots of like people in a car sitting in silence or listening to lines from Chekhov. But it's exploration of grief and human connection, forgiveness, how we relate to art in our lives is so riveting and affecting that it never lost me. I was there for the full three hours and incredibly moved by it. Mm. I just didn't want it to end. And the acting is incredible. The way they show how a production of a play develops, the way you kind of think about what it means to be in a car and the space that opens up of traveling. And when you were talking about love and loving people for who they are and showing up for the real person, I think this this is a film about that too. And it's wonderful. So I'd recommend anyone watch it if you can in the theaters or or on BFI player. Wow. That sounds amazing. Just for something that's simple to hold your attention for that long is like testament yeah, to its, its power. So it's so, I mean, it is the kind of thing I love. <laughs> it's like very stripped back and about yeah. feelings and art, but I really think it's a masterpiece. It's wonderful. And it's very beautiful too, even if it's very simple, just the way the camera thinks about these actors and the things that they're doing and and the ways they're interacting with each other. Mm, Brilliant. What's your first recommendation? Very different vibe. (laughs) Also a movie. Um, It's Madras Paralelas by Amodovar, which I saw twice in the cinema, which I don't know if I've ever done, actually. I saw it one week and then I went to see it again another week with the same friend, actually, with, with our friend Anna. We loved it so much. It was just, I don't know, like, so some listeners might know, I wrote part of my thesis about Almodova. I've studied him in my whole kind of academic career and have seen almost all of his films, uh, well, all all of his films up until the time I finished my PhD when I then was like, I don't want to watch any of Almodova's films for a while. Um, But this one, it had everything I wanted from him in it. And I don't know, I, I was thinking it's hard for me to put my finger on what exactly about it made it so totally perfect in my mind. But I think the first thing to say is that Almodovar always said he was never going to make work about Franco's legacy because he didn't want to give the dictatorship any space. It had plenty of space already. And his form of protest was to be like, fuck you, I'm going to show you this queer world that you tried to repress thriving and in all its kind of funny complexities and whatever. He was just going to look at other things. He was going to look at desire and the power of desire to create stories. And that was it. And this is his first film where actually he starts to address it. And so that in itself, if you're somebody who is a fan of Amadeva's work, 
is really powerful because he's by this point made something like 30 films. I can't think quite how many, but you know, he's very prolific. Um, so just that is kind of electrifying, but it's also, it's so stylish. It's so beautiful. All the things that he, that are very important to him as an auteur director, like exquisite sets and the way he uses color really speaks to me. I'm incredibly sensitive to color. And so it's just a language that I respond to very emotively. And Penelope Cruz is, the, is one of the leads. And she is obviously, I just, I think she's such a talented actor. She carries this movie so beautifully, but it's very stylized. It's, it's about motherhood, but it's about motherhood as symbolic as well as in reality. So for example, there are these two mothers, but you never see them breastfeed, even though they've got babies. Like that's not the point. The point of this film is not to represent motherhood as it really is. It's you enter this very stylish world where people have wealth and it's not really the point of it. The point of it is that like these two women have their baby swapped in the hospital. That's kind of the, the catalyzing point in the story. And I'm not really going to tell you that much more about it. I think you should just see it. But he is really kind of playing with the relationship between history and allegory and capitalism and trauma, which is always very interesting. As ever with Almodovar, he's presenting alternative family structures. He's looking at queerness and how it interplays with the role of mother and the role of employer, actually, and love. And and what does love do? How does it operate as a power? What is the love between a parent and a child? And what happens when that relationship gets disrupted by forces out of their control? And also, as ever in Almodovar's world, fathers are presented as either totally absent or very useless. <laughs> or there's this one father figure who he literally has one job and he performs his one job pretty well, <laughs> but he has one job essentially symbolically and also um, within the narrative. Yeah. But yeah, it's fantastic and very moving in a way that's quite surprising because at first it feels like it's not going to be that emotionally deep. And I was incredibly surprised that the second time Anna and I saw it, we were both in tears at the end again, which I didn't expect. You know, you know it's coming. You don't think necessarily it's going to move you as much. I loved it as well. I thought it yeah. was excellent. And I think it's also about forgiveness, as all of his films are. You know, it's always yeah. about strange things happening to people and hard things happening to people and finding a way through and rethinking what our lives will be and how they will be. Right. In the most beautiful way. But what I really liked about it is that you have this like plot with the mothers and you have this kind of larger commentary and plot about Franco and they don't perfectly map onto each other. And I think that makes it more powerful. There's something like they're symbolically linked, but they're not perfect representations of each other. And I thought that was so smart in a way. Like it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like he was trying to hit you over the head with a point about Franco. He was trying to like show something much bigger and more important about like legacy and families and, and something that you can't tie up in a neat bow. And I really liked that. Yeah. It's such a good point. And also about really memory and the power of having accurate memory <laughs> and yeah. having a having a handle on the truth of history yeah and how life might be easier if you don't but it's not the truth therefore it's not really that good to you yeah 
Like there's this trope that comes through it often where Penelope Cruz's character is constantly seen carrying loads of bags. And it's just a very simple comment on baggage and how knowledge yeah. is baggage, <laughs> you know, but baggage can also be stylish because it's our motivator and the bags are beautiful. <laughs> the bags are beautiful. Yeah, they really, they really are. Um, what's your next recommendation? My next recommendation is another film, definitely available to uh, watch for free if you have the BFI player, called Support the Girls, which is written and directed by Andrew Bajalski. It's a film from 2018 about the day in the life of a staff of women at a kind of Hooters-like bar called Double Whammies. What a name. Which is somewhere, somewhere in Texas. So it's one of those bars where like women show their breasts but it's also kind of family friendly and there's sports on and they're giving you burgers and things like that. That is such a weird cultural phenomenon. It's so weird. It's so weird. And that's what, one of the great things about this movie, that it's kind of a movie that's like, this is a weird thing that happens in America. Like, let's get under the skin of this. But the director, I, ha- I hadn't seen any of his films before, but he's apparently known as the godfather of mumblecore. <laughs> wow. Um. So like, Mumblecore is like the kind of indie film where it's a lot of dialogue, low production values. It's more about relationships than any kind of like clear plot. And this definitely ticks all those boxes. It's kind of, it's just the day in the life of the women working at this restaurant, Double Whammies, and, and focusing on the manager played supremely by Regina Hall. I liked it because it, it of like immersing myself in that world, but I also thought it was really funny. It was really warm. It felt like a pretty profound depiction through this really odd cultural phenomenon of like capitalism and work and misogyny and how complex those things are, even in this very misogynistic kind of business model. But it was never sanctimonious about it. And as I said, Regina Hall just brilliant. She's playing this exasperated manager who's very dedicated to her work. And she holds the restaurant together. She also holds this film together. She comes from a comedy background. You can tell that she can play that, but she just also has this incredible pathos. And I will now watch her in anything because I thought she was just magnetic. Oh, fab. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. So really, I mean, it's it's a little like confection of a movie, you know, it's not going to change your life, but I was really glad that I watched it. Yeah. What's your last recommendation? Mine is an exhibition which is on at the moment at the Hayward Gallery in London. And if you can get to it and get to London and see it, I think it's super worth it. It's called The Woven Child and it's um, Louise Bourgeois' Fabric Works. And there's loads of stuff in there that I've seen photographs of my whole life and have never been able to see in person because they're in private collections. So really a once in a, I don't know, decade maybe chance to see them. And my God, I mean, I'm actually, I'm going to try and go back if I can get a ticket again, because I found it very moving, um, very profound experience and quite overwhelming as a result. It's just the emotions were quite big. So it's very unsettling. And I guess the main sort of themes in it are like, they tend to be with her work, you know, memory and identity, complexity of human experience, including sex, family, motherhood, There's a lot in this one about the maternal body and the traces that the maternal body leaves behind, which I found very, very interesting, especially because we're just thinking about parenthood a lot at the moment. And also talking of fathers, I mean, boy, oh boy, the father figure looms so large in her work because the kind of core uh, psychological drama of a lot of bourgeois work is 
the complex situation in her family where her father had an affair with the nanny for years and it devastated her because she adored him as the perfect daddy. And then of course he sort of wrecked the family with the mother figure and the real mother and the psychological fragmentation. And then the fragmentation of the family is something that she returns to again and again and again in her work. And she had a lot of psychoanalysis in her life and she was very interested in psychoanalysis. So all of those themes are very, very live in what she makes. But there's a lot in this exhibition that's, she was very, very interested in clothes and what they symbolize, but also the tactility of them. And she kept a lot of her mother's clothes and her own clothes. And so there are these extraordinary sculptures that use fabulous silk slips and um, vests and negligees and things hanging from bones, cow's bones. And some of them are distorted with stuffing. So they look like they have bodies in them when they don't and all of this. And But you know that they, they were her mother's actual clothes or her actual clothes. And this idea of the traces of the body that clothing leaves behind and how it's a very direct passage to a memory of a person or a sense of their body. I've never seen artists evoke that quite as powerfully and as delicately as her. And there's also a lot of stuff that is her stitching. Her mother was a weaver and the spiders, which are very famous sculptures that she made, which represent the mother because she sees the the spider as a creature that is invested in repair. And her parents were carpet restorers and her mother was you know, very skilled with a needle. And she grew up with this world of weaving around her. And so weaving in Louise Bourgeois's imagination is a very restorative kind of gentle, loving thing to do. And the spider does that. But she had this, I mean, extraordinary kind of fabric canvases with just beautiful embroidery work done on them. And you really feel the presence of the artist's body in those works, because for me, there's something more direct about it than painting in a way. I can't really tell you why. I think probably because we all know what fabric feels like against our skin. And there's a very direct relationship to that when you look at these pieces. So yeah, it was mm. extraordinary. And it's got a lot in it. It's a big exhibition. And so I recommend leaving quite a lot of time if you do go. I'm going next weekend. Hopefully. Oh, amazing. I'm recovered. Yeah. Yeah. Leave some time and space for it. The way that she evokes the pregnant body is just kind of colossal and fascinating and full of pain as well as beauty you know there's a lot a lot of tenderness in this exhibition too but yeah it's i just go if you can everyone because it's a a real opportunity well there we go i think we wrapped that up pretty good i think we did too and well done like louise bourgeois with fabric hey there we go we did a little stitching (laughs) um i would just like to say a massive thank you to you for showing up even though you have covid and making such a great show in spite of it you're an absolute powerhouse thank you we will let our listeners decide whether it was great but (laughs) thank you for supporting me through this difficult time (laughs) thanks for listening everyone we have been carrie plitt and octavia brights with literary friction and we will be back in a couple of weeks with a full show we will